from all around the nation will be searching for eggs laid by bunny rabbits. I haven't found such a bunny yet. Millions of Americans will have their fill of candy and brunch, but I'm not here to talk about eggs, chocolate, or scrambled. I'm here to talk about the resurrection of Jesus, but before I get to that, I wanted to talk a little bit about death. In order for us to understand the significance of the resurrection of Jesus, we have to understand death, the problem of death. Is death even a problem? American inventor and co-founder of Apple Computer Steve Jobs said this in a commencement speech. He said, death is very likely the single best invention of life. Is death really the single best invention of life? And, and if so, are you lining up at death's door? The reality is that we are all already lined up at death's door. Some of us are closer to the front of the line than others. It, it's... <laughs> It's not a line that you want to cut into. And in fact, you would be glad if someone would cut in front of you. And yet we're all in that line. But what if on the other side of death's door was the hope of something better? What if on this side of death's door there was the hope of something better? The title of the message this morning is The Resurrection of Jesus Brings Hope for Today and Hope for Tomorrow. It brings hope for this side of death's door and it brings hope for the other side of death's door. The Bible doesn't describe death as life's greatest invention. The Bible describes death as an enemy as the last enemy, the ultimate enemy, the final enemy. Easter is a celebration of an event that was meant to destroy death once and for all. And that event is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when it comes to the importance and the believability of the Christian faith, everything stands or falls on this one event. If the resurrection of Jesus did not happen, then we are wasting our time. Bring on the chocolate eggs and scrambled eggs because I'm hungry. But if the resurrection of Jesus happened, then it means everything. It's not just a great game changer, it's a life changer. And so I want to talk to you, I want to speak about three things related to the resurrection of Jesus. The first is, the resurrection of Jesus really did happen. The second is that the resurrection of Jesus completes the message of Jesus. And the third point is that the resurrection of Jesus gives us hope for today and hope for tomorrow. Those are the three points. Point number one, the resurrection of Jesus really did happen. Christianity is an evidence-based faith. 
The primary event of Christianity is the resurrection, and its truth is established based on evidence. What do I mean? If you want to build a false religion, you make something up that cannot be verified. So, say that you went by yourself into the woods and you received the word of God directly. Only, you and you only received it and you wrote it down on some magic plates, okay? That is a great way to make up a false religion. Why? Because only you heard from God. How do you know? Take my word for it. So, if you're trying to make up a false religion, you don't base it off something that can be verified. And that's exactly what the Christian faith is. When they say, when we say that Jesus is risen from the dead, that's an event that can be verified or it can be debunked. And how do you debunk a resurrection? Well, think about resurrection for a second. Resurrection is a concept that we don't really have a category for. People die and they stay dead. Am I right? 100% death rate. We don't expect a person in the grave to get up. And so the easiest way to disprove a resurrection account is to produce the body. There will always be a body. And so the, the, the evidence starts with the empty tomb. In, uh, empty tomb. in Mark chapter 16, verse 6, Mary and Mary go up to the tomb, not expecting to find a resurrected Jesus. Right? They're going with spices to anoint Jesus. And they're hoping that there will be enough people there to roll away this big heavy stone so that they can go and anoint him with these spices. But they come and they see an angel who's sitting on top. And he says, he's not here. Don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. That's what the angel says to them. And he says, come, look. Look where he laid. The tomb is empty. He's gone. And the reason that the angel says is because he has risen. Now, most historians agree that Jesus was a real person. In early, uh, within a hundred years of his death, both Jewish and Roman historians mention Jesus as being real and mention Jesus as being crucified. It is a fringe belief of people who say Jesus never existed. So Jesus really lived and he really died. And if he really died, the question is, where is his body? You might say, well, maybe... Maybe the disciples took him, right? That's what they were worried about. The Jewish leaders of his day did not like Jesus. Jesus was stealing their shine. Jesus was becoming too popular, too powerful, and they wanted to quelch that movement. And so they decided to kill Jesus. So they had every incentive to keep that body secure. They had every incentive, even if somehow... The disciples came and overpowered two trained Roman soldiers and rolled away a huge stone and stole his body. The Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders would have been after them. And they would have used every resource imaginable to find that body because all they had to do to stop Christianity in its tracks 
was to say, look, here's Jesus. He's dead. There he is. And we would not be here today. But according to the angel, he said, Jesus is risen and the tomb was empty and the body has never been produced. That's the first piece of evidence. But you need more than that. Because if, if that's all you have, maybe it's just a mystery. Maybe just the body went away and, yeah, we've never found it, but who knows? It doesn't necessarily mean that he rose from the dead. But the second piece is what makes this case compelling. It's that there were people who actually saw Jesus alive after he was crucified. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It'll be up on the screen as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 through 8. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom were still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he, appealed, he appeared to me. This is Paul writing. Paul's saying, I've seen him. Peter's seen him. All the apostles have seen him. 500 people at one time have seen him. And he said, some of these people are alive today. He's writing to the Corinthians. In other words, he's saying, go talk to them. They're living. They're well. I'm one of them. I've seen them. And you might say to me, but that's great for them, but what about us? We're are our life sources. And then the question comes down to, how do you believe anything in antiquity? Like, we believe things happened in the past, right? We have textbooks, we have history books that tell us that certain events occurred, and we believe that they occurred. Why? Because they were written down. Not just by one person, but by multiple people. And so the, the tendency to believe if something was truly historical is based on the fact that, one, it was written down, and two, you had multiple people writing it down. That tends to build a case for whether or not something happened in history. And guess what? With the resurrection of Jesus, it was written down, it was recorded, and it was written down by multiple people. And that's the point that Paul is making. He's saying, you know what? I know you struggle with this idea of resurrection. Guess what? Why? Because it doesn't happen, right? It's impossible. But he's saying you can talk to hundreds of people who are still around, who saw it with their own eyes. And as unbelievable as it might seem, the evidence seems to say that something happened miraculously. The resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the grave. And so the, 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 the thing that I want to bring us here to first, the resurrection really did happen. Based on the evidence, like the, the alternatives aren't good. And, and people have proposed, well, okay, how do you explain that people saw Jesus? Well, maybe he never really died. Like people have, people have proposed that. But when you think about 
how he died. He was flogged, he was beaten, and he was hung on a cross, and then he was stabbed in the side with a spear that pierced his heart by professional executioners. And then he was put in the tomb with a large stone rolled in front of it. There's no way anyone survives that. And so even that's not a great explanation. The only explanation that makes sense, even despite the seeming impossibility that anyone could raise from the dead, is that somehow Jesus really rose from the dead. But that's not the only reason why we should believe. I think even more important and more compelling for me than the evidence of the resurrection is the message that the resurrection of Jesus completes. Jesus came to earth, the Son of God, in flesh, in human form, and he had a message to proclaim. And and that's my second point, is I want to speak to you about how the resurrection of Jesus completes the message of Jesus. What is Jesus' message? I want to look at a familiar passage from the Gospel of John. John chapter 3, verse 16 and following. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. It's interesting, uh, before I get to the for God so loved the world part, he says that he's not come into the world to condemn because the world is already condemned. In other words, we are born into a state of condemnation. Now, what is that state? He answers that in verse 19. This is Jesus speaking. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. There's a problem of our condemnation is based on the problem of evil. We're born in need of a Savior because we desire darkness. We desire evil deeds rather than light. And it's not difficult to understand that evil exists in the world. Even this morning, I don't know if you read about the church bombings in Sri Lanka. Over 200 and counting. That was early this morning. It's probably higher now. Like those things, obviously evil, wicked. It shouldn't happen. It shouldn't be that way. And so it's pretty clear to see that there's evil in the world. But we tend to think of evil as something that's out there and not in here. But the Bible makes it clear that evil starts not in the ambiguity of out there, but in the specificity of in here, in our hearts. That's where evil starts. When I was a young adult... What drew me most to Christianity 
was, was not the evidence of the, res, of the resurrection. It was the sense that the, the scriptures accurately identified me as a sinner. Believe it or not, that's what drew me to Christ. I was a, a quote-unquote good kid. People would look at me and say, there is a good kid. He's polite and rarely swore, except, of course, in the intense game of basketball. I never stole anything, except for like little pens and pencils, you know, anything like under $5. But other than that, I never stole anything. I didn't get into fights. I was just not a fighter, except for the one time I called this kid Urkel. I wasn't a bully at all. I I treated people kindly, except for the one time I made someone kiss my feet in the eighth grade. On second thought, maybe I wasn't such a great kid. That's how we measure our moral standing, right? Like we, we have a standard. We have a definition of what we think a good person does and what we think a bad person does. And we try to, to hold up that standard in our lives. We try to rationalize or speak to us in a way that says, yeah, we, we meet our standard. We're a good person. And, and it's very easy for us to stack the deck in our favor. And we do that by minimizing right? What I did, oh, that wasn't so bad. It, I only stole like pencils, pens. That, that's, that's not even stealing hardly, right? Or I just did it once. You know, so many other people do it so many more times. I just did it once. Or we like to compare to other people, right? I'm not as, I'm not as bad as my dad. I'm not as bad as my mom. I'm not, I'm not as bad as my boss. And we use those mechanisms to feel better about ourselves. To reduce the feeling of guilt and the feeling of shame. But God's standard is perfect. God's standard is perfection. And he sees through these mechanisms that we use to try to minimize our guilt. To try to minimize our shame. He holds a standard that's perfect. The Bible's like a mirror, a true mirror. Like, you might think you look good, and then you look in the mirror, you're like, nah, maybe I don't look that good. Like, it tells the truth, regardless of what you think. That's what the Bible does. It tells the truth about us. Most of us are familiar with some of the Ten Commandments. Right? You shouldn't steal. You shouldn't murder. You shouldn't commit adultery. And and most people would agree that these are good things. Like the Bible talks about some good things to do. Yeah, if you want to be a good person, you should probably keep the Ten Commandments. And and most of us uh, believe that we keep them. But Jesus tells us that we don't really keep them. Let's take, for example, murder. Most of us in this room, hopefully, have probably not committed murder according to the laws. And so it's really easy to, if you're reading a list of things, okay, what makes me good? Okay, murder, uh, don't murder. Okay, check, I'm good, right? That's how we approach God's law. 
But Jesus interprets that law in a way that implicates all of us. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, verse 21. This is Jesus interpreting the law for us. He says in verse 21, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Right? If you murder, you get the consequence. That's what Jesus is saying. But, verse 22, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now what Jesus is doing, he's clarifying where the bar is. It's just not what you do externally that determines your moral character. It's what's in your heart, and it's even what you say. And when I read things like this in the Scripture, and I examine my own heart, and I examine my own words, I find that I don't measure up. How many of you have ever used words to tear into someone? You can, you can raise your hand. You can just sit there and, and, and pretend like you haven't. Right? But have you ever used the word? You're not trying to correct. You're not trying to gently help someone see the right thing. You want them to feel the pain, right? You want to tear someone down. And what Jesus is saying is that's using your words to murder people. And he says, murder deserves judgment. It deserves consequence, not just if you physically kill someone, but even if your heart is reflective of... Have have you ever hated someone? And maybe I'm just speaking about myself. Like in a moment, not just completely, right? But in a moment, have you ever hated someone so much that you wouldn't mind if they just disappeared from the earth? You wouldn't mind if they just went away. That's what Jesus is talking about. And and I want to be honest, this is in our hearts. This is in everyone's hearts. And not just murder. He goes down the list of things. He says murder, adultery, like, oh, I haven't committed adultery, but have you been looking at porn? Have you been fantasizing about other women or other men? Guilty. So he goes down the line. He goes down to the heart of these commandments. And at its root, all the commands, Jesus says they all boil down to this one thing, two things. One, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the other one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the laws of God boil down to do you love God and do you love others with all that you have? And when we understand how high that bar is, then we understand how far we fall short of it every moment, every day. When I encountered this message of Jesus, I, I know my heart. I don't tell people everything that's in my heart. And so people can look at me and, and think I'm a good person because I generally don't do bad things. But I know, like, my thoughts. I know the thoughts I've had about other people. And when I came to see how holy and righteous and perfect God is, I saw myself as a person 
who needed help. And the beautiful news about Jesus is that he meets us where we're at. In the midst of my vile thoughts, in the midst of my murderous words, Jesus says, I love you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That he came, that God gave his son to sacrifice for our sins, to to pay the penalty, to, to take on the judgment on himself. His perfect life was good enough. And where the resurrection of Jesus completes the message of Jesus, how do we know if Jesus' sacrifice was accepted by God? Because Jesus rose from the dead. His resurrection proves to us that his sacrifice was enough to pay for all of our sins. Not just past, not just today, but future sins. That God loves us so much that he let his son die for us. And because he rose for us, it's finished, it's accepted, and we have a hope now. Not just for today, but for eternity. And that's my last point. The resurrection of Jesus brings hope for today and hope for tomorrow. The resurrection of Jesus brings hope for today. Romans chapter 6. Turn with me if you will. If you have a Bible, if you have an app, it will also be on the screen. Romans chapter 6. Starting verse 3. Do you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. What he's saying is that God has loved us, so he initiates our salvation But then God also continues our salvation so that something happens when we believe. Something happens when we believe this message of Jesus. We're buried with him in death and we're raised with him in life. So that, as Paul says here in Romans, there's newness of life. And elsewhere, uh, the Bible describes as the Spirit of God is within us, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. That's why the resurrection of Jesus is so important. It's crucial to the faith. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, and this power, the Spirit of God that 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 raised Jesus from the dead dwells within us, then our lives will look different. Our lives will look new. 
we will have hope. We will have the ability to do things that we weren't able to do and to kill things that we didn't think could be killed. And, and that's my testimony. As I met this Jesus and I saw where I was in terms of my standing before him over the years, God has, has, has created in me new desires. Desires to, to love people to give to people. Desires that I thought I couldn't kill are, are being killed now. And, and I can look objectively at my life in and, and, and very different ways and say, like, God has changed me. His Spirit has worked in me to, to change me into a more loving person, to a more kind person, to a person who could marry Stephanie and she would be happy with me. That wouldn't have been the case 20 years ago. That wouldn't have been the case 10 years ago. It's a testimony of God's goodness. When we meet Jesus, we have hope for today because his spirit indwells in us and empowers us to actually begin loving God and loving others in ways that we weren't previously able to. It's real. Like God works. He's alive. He's well. He sits at the right hand of the Father. And he asks us to, to believe, to trust in him, to follow him and see if he would not help us in our walk. The resurrection of Jesus also brings us hope for not just today, but hope for tomorrow. Verse 5, same chapter. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. The resurrection of Jesus deals with the problem of death by destroying death ultimately and finally. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we can look forward to a world, a kingdom where death no longer reigns, where sin no longer has its presence, where churches don't explode, where earthquakes don't bring down buildings, where there are no more school shootings. Like, we know this world is not the way it ought to be. And Jesus has said, hold tight. Because I rose from the dead, I'm coming again, and I will set everything right. And so in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of a body that's broken and that's dying and that's decaying, there's a hope on the other side of death that God is bringing us a new body and a new world with a new king who reigns and rules righteously and with love and with justice and all pain and all suffering will be no more, all sin will be no more, all evil will be no more. And we will have new bodies that are able to perfectly reflect the ways in which God has created us to be. And we will be in his presence forever. And this is the new world that the new kingdom that Jesus is ushering in, starting at the cross. When he paid for our sins. And when he rose from the dead and proved that his sacrifice was enough. It's something that we have now. It's a real hope that we can hold on to in the midst of darkness. We have glimpses of God's beauty in this world. And those glimpses can serve like as a down payment, a reminder of what God will bring in fullness in time. And so if, 
if you have believed this message of Jesus, you have this hope. You have eternal life right now. Your life will not end. It may end on this earth. It will end on this earth unless Jesus comes back first. But on the other side of death's door is life everlasting with a God who loves us. With a God who loves us so much. And we're going to do some baptisms. Baptism is, is a time where it, it's like a symbol of what actually happens. So we're buried with Christ and we rise to new life. And, and when we hear this message... How we respond is to follow Jesus and to say, Lord, you're right. I've tried too long and too hard to try to be good. Lord, I need help. I acknowledge that I fall short of your standard and I need you to save me. That's what baptism does. Or that's what baptism reflects or symbolizes. And so at this time, I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to pray for us. And then you can grab your kids, and we're going to shift into a transition time of, of doing baptisms. We have a, that, that metal container thingy. That's where we're dunking two people today. All right? Father, we thank you so much for sending your son to die for us. We thank you so much that your son didn't stay dead, that he rose, Lord, and that he's alive and well, and that we can have hope, Lord, that, that, that we have hope here and today, Lord, that you will change us, that you've forgiven us and will continue to forgive us, and that we have hope that extends beyond the grave and beyond the tomb because you're not in it. So, Lord, would you help us to grab hold of that hope would you help us to turn to you and to your son? We thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for the victory that we have in Jesus. In Christ's name I pray, amen.